This is the MG Car Club podcast. On this episode, we go back in time and relive working at Abingdon, the factory that built MGs with a former worker there, Vito Orlando. The MG Car Club podcast. Hello and welcome to another episode of the MG Car Club podcast with me, Wayne Scott. And a very special series of podcasts on the way for you over the next few weeks because there was a very exciting event that took place at the MG Car Club's headquarters at Kimber House in Abingdon, where an annual reunion took place of all of the former factory workers that worked for MG at Abingdon during its heyday of the 1950s, 60s, 70s, uh, before the plant closed, of course, in 1980. They do this reunion every year, but this is the first year that it has run since before the pandemic. So it was a fantastic energy and atmosphere in the room, and we pulled out a few of those present to hear some of their memories. On this episode, we start with the man that organises the reunion. It is Vito Orlando, and there are some amazing memories to come in the next 30 minutes. So sit back and enjoy. The MG Car Club Podcast. The MG Car Club, the mark of friendship. To take advantage of our many membership benefits, access to our centres and registers, and to receive your copy of Safety Fast magazine, join us now at mgcc.go.uk. Sharing your passion for MG on the MG Car Club podcast. Well, here on the MG Car Club podcast, we find ourselves in an office in the back room of Kimber House here in Abingdon. And it's a very special day here for the MG Car Club, for Kimber House and for all the people that are here because it is the reunion of all the ex-workers that worked for MG here in Abingdon during its uh, very successful years, of course, before it closed in 1980. We'll find out more about those amazing years building MGs here in Abingdon uh, from the various people that we're going to pull out of the crowd out there today an interview about their memories working for MG and the first man to join me is Vito Orlando the genius behind today who has organized and recruited all of these people firstly Vito fantastic day great to see so many familiar faces for you I guess out there yeah I'm quite surprised actually um three years ago was the last one we had and of course we've had the pandemics and that stopped it all and uh it's starting again and uh, it's amazing and they're swapping stories and you know and it's brilliant it's uh, really brilliant because it was a uh, really um, lovely place to work at and everybody fathers sons sisters they all work there you know there's generations of families all Abingdon you know yeah brilliant yeah well some amazing stories that i've sort of heard as i've walked amongst them out there and hopefully we'll capture a few of them here your story though begins in 1957 doesn't it that was your first year and and where did it all begin at mg for you well really what i would started was uh, i went to school at um in avondon box hill it was called and lunchtime as kids we would come into avondon and we'd see these little red, green, yellow, um, the TDs at the time. 
Um, and they were just fantastic. And I used to think, God, I'd love to work there, you know. And of course, as soon as I left school, I got a job here. And from then on, you know, that's what's happened. Did you get a sense in the town at the time, growing up here, that this was MG's town? Was it sort of on every street corner? Were well, you really aware of it? I, actually, um, that's the thing about... There's been a little bit more than there used to be, but in those days, not really, because it, I think it was... So many people worked there that it was part of the... used to get people coming in to work at MG's that were electricians, plumbers, carpenters, whatever um, trade they had, because it was a good and it paid well. So you found yourself as a young lad, 1957. Uh, you started um, on the shop floor, uh, and you were basically a tea boy, I guess, and you were yeah, running it, around it was, doing what you were told. Yeah, it, <laughs> yeah, it was a tea boy. That was my job. Yeah. You know, you were, say, on a line, put on a line, and you um, had... Probably on that line, you could have had 40 people working on that line. And it was trim deck, so it was upstairs on a, like a mezzanine. And um, you would help out with anything on the line, so you'd help the people. And in those days, it was piecework. And piecework meant that you were um, as quick as the slowest man on that line. It wasn't, um, um, you know, like nowadays, um, you had to push the cars up the lines. Mm. So you finished your job and you pushed the car up mm. and the next one moved up. But, of course, if you were a bit slow, you was always waiting for mm. that particular chap. So, but they would help each other because, I they could finish earlier. And once they'd finished say they had 40 cars to do that particular day, once they finished, they went home. Mm -hmm. So they could go home half past two, three o'clock in the afternoon. <laughs> and yeah, it was eight to five. Yeah, okay. Right? So, but that was piecework. And then they mucked it up by bringing in measure day work. So basically, you were paid to do, say, 40 cars a day, but you finished at five o'clock. You had a, a schedule, and the schedule was, say, 10 minutes for each car. So you had 10 minutes to do that, whatever job it was, and then the car moved up. Mm -hmm. Right, in the mornings, you had to clock in when you come in. Now, you'd get on the clock, and you had to wait for all these people that used to come in, because you'd get um, three minutes. You started at eight o'clock. You clocked in, but you had three minutes from eight to three minutes past eight to clock in. After eight, eight uh, three minutes past eight, you lost a quarter of an hour's pay. So, <laughs> so really the incentive was they still got paid the same amount of money at the end of the week for doing 40 cars or doing 39. Mm. Because sometimes if the car didn't move up that 10 minutes at, at eight o'clock at 10 past, they would knock a car off the build. So in those early days, that would have been, I'm guessing, MGA? 
Um, I started in 57, which was at the end of the TD, I think it okay. was, right? And then the MGA started. And the MGA, of course, was um, had a chassis line as well because they built the chassis and then they used to drop the MGA bodies from upstairs down onto the body lines to mar it with the chassis. Um, but later on, of course, the MGB was a monocoque, which was a body chassis together. So you got... Uh, but I remember that at the end of the... When I was on the chassis line as a shop boy again, uh, uh, the, when the car, uh, the chassis was finished, it used to have to go round only about probably 50 yards. But it'd have the wheels, the chassis would have the wheels, the uh, axles on, the floor, and the floor was wooden floor. And um, they suddenly stick a steering wheel on there, and then they would push the car round onto the body line, where the body would be dropped onto it. Well, I'd sit in the, on there, and they'd push me round, and I'd drive it onto the... Another thing about a shop boy, when I was in development, we had, um, at the time I was a shop boy in development, we had a, a racing car called the EX181, mm -hmm. which was um, uh, the raindrop, I think uh, they, they named it, basically. Um, and it was built to fit um, Sterling Moss. Mm -hmm. So, of course, the seat was basically all made for him. And he was a small bloke. I was a little lad. I think I was about 16 then. And, um, and they were getting it ready to go to the States to, for the, um, the record run on Utah salt flats. And um, so I happened at the time, and they wanted the car taken to the finishing shop to be polished and get it all ready, and then they would crate it and actually then ship it to the States. But they pushed me out, and it, only probably 150 yards out of the shop, but because it only had a very small... Um, steering, um, you know, what yeah, do you call lock, it? Yeah. Lock. They had to keep pushing me in and out <laughs> until they got it right. So that because out of the workshop, the massive doorway, but there was a wall right opposite. So they had to, and it took a little while by the time, and they pushed me down. And that's another thing to my, um, you know. Yeah. So you might have been a shop boy at uh, Abingdon for the MG Works, but you were officially Sterling Moss's stand-in. Yes, <laughs> yes, and Phil Hills. <laughs> yeah. Um, we, Phil Hill was the uh, second driver that actually broke the land speed record, mm. um, you know. Yeah. Uh, on for Ferrari racing yeah. as well, of course, didn't he? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, and what were conditions like here at Abingdon at the time? Was it a nice factory to work in? Well, I, I, I can remember one thing that, uh, you know, you, you quickly, uh, how good it was, everybody, but we used to have music while you work. Wow. It used to be at something like 
10 o'clock, I think, or something like that. And they used to belt it over the tannoys. And we'd have music while we work, and you're working. And it makes a, you know, a, 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 a big difference of because it's monotonous work. It's sometimes, in a way, you know, you think, how can these people work this day in, day out, doing the same, you know, thing? But no, they, and another thing is really, um, it was quite a happy place and we'd never really had any problems. Mm-hmm. You know, you had the odd thing, but nothing like going back to those days where you had strikes at other places. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that because I've interviewed lots of people who worked in the various factories in Coventry like Triumph and Jaguar and the Roots Group. They were constantly being closed um, due to strikes uh, or due to a dispute with a union who would literally just come in, shut down the line. Was that present here in Abingdon as well? No, no. We we did have, don't, you know, think that really um, we didn't have any problems. There were, but... It was quickly sorted and in-house. The, the, the biggest problem we had was that because other, because basically we were an assembly factory. Though we built chassis for the MGA at, at Abingdon, Longbridge mm-hmm. for engines. Mm-hmm. You'd have um, another place in Wales for axles or exhausts from a place in in Oxford, you know. So we were basically an assembly line. So if they were out on strike, they were out, we didn't get the parts. So we would be shut out. So that didn't used to go down well. But By the time you finished your career at MG in 1980, when this factory that was literally just a stone's throw from where we're sat now in Kimber House was closed... Uh, you were a foreman, so um, from those early beginnings right the way through your career, was the sort of progression encouraged? Were you encouraged to to get the next position in the factory? Was there a kind of a career path laid for you? Yeah, because basically I, I'm good with my hands. Mm-hmm. And they could see that, that when I went on, after the shop boy up to 18 then you had to either go on the line or whatever jobs that were available. Um, I went on the line, so I worked on the lines. And then, um, of course, the foreman on that particular line realised that I was good at doing a lot of the things. So then I was offered a slip or uh, sick relief, we were called, so you would do every job on that line. So if somebody was out on the clock, you would they would say, so-and-so, and you'd go and do that job. Mm-hmm. And that then for, I don't know, three, four years, I suppose. And then, of course, uh, this uh, foreman's job cropped up. and um, And again, it was good because... I was on the line that I knew all the work that was on that line. So um, I knew what, what was what. But a lot of the workers on that line, I was a T-boy too. Mm. 
when it was a uh, the frog eyed midget line, uh, yeah, sure. right? And um, Sprite, which was a Sprite. I was a shop boy to them, and I'd take their tea, and then I was their foreman. Mm. But you get a rapport. Mm. They knew what I was like. I knew them, and I never really had any problems. I guess they respected you for coming up through the ranks, as it were. Yeah, basically, yeah. Mm. Yeah. Oh, you you still had the jokers. (laughs) But uh, another thing, you know... um, how good it was. Now, I was a foreman one particular Christmas, and I was a foreman on the midget line upstairs. And, of course, at Christmas time, they would bring in um, stuff to eat, like mince pies and, um, you know, and all other stuff. They'd have all, you know, decorations all over the place. But there was a, a, a lad on the line I was on, and he played the cornet, the French no, the French horn it was. Well, it was a bugle type thing, whatever it was. In those days, you only had a couple of days off. Yeah. You only had Christmas Day, Boxing Day, and that was it. You know, he got his um, uh, cornet, bugle, or French horn, whatever it was called, and he then went over on the mezzanine down looking down to the downstairs lines and he played Silent Night. Wow. And he played Silent Night and everybody was singing. <laughs> and and even now you'll see photos of the decorations and, um, you know, and it was, it was that sort of place. Mm. Was there a bit of a family feel and well, atmosphere? Yeah, it was, it was. Now, I do this organisation of ex-workers. Mm-hmm. Now, when you get, say, five Belgers that you got to phone up, five berries that you got to phone up, <laughs> um, you know, OK, a lot of them have died and, and that now, but mm-hmm. that's the sort of thing, the, um, the, um, uh, the butlers or, mm-hmm. you know, there's a chap here called George Buck. Now, his dad and his granddad worked at MGs, wow. you know, yeah. and he became a professional footballer, mm. but only after working and then going on to um, mm. uh, football. Amazing, but that sort it? of thing, yeah. Yeah, the diversity of the sort of people who worked here from the local community is amazing. And, yeah. you know, it's always amazing to think what Cecil Kimber would have made of what MG became. Of course, he never saw the heyday that you worked in. He died in 1945 in a train crash. Um, But from just starting those special-bodied Morrises gave such an amazing brand to the world and a family Mm -hmm. and a a whole, as you've just described, a whole series of people who came through the family working for the same factory. Was there then a sense of pride about the vehicles that were made? Because you often hear people knocking British cars. And I like to, you know, just have an insight into the sort of pride that people felt in those cars as they rolled off the production line, finally finished. Yeah, I I think that um, with MG, it started off before the war, where they built cars for racing. And they were very successful. So they've built a, you know... Um, background to 
And they carried on that after the war and, you know, into the 50s and 60s and, and 70s. But they were building cars that were, um, in a way, a man, a, an ordinary man could afford. And they were good cars as well, not just, you know, because they were cheaper. I always tell people that I finished in 1980 when it closed. If it hadn't closed... I would have retired there. Mm. So that's the best way for um, to say yeah. about working there because it was it was um, that good to work. Tell us about when it closed. Then how how did you find that out? How did you hear about it? And and how did it feel? What was your initial reactions? And you probably don't want to hear. <laughs> um, the thing is, we had. We basically, our main um, um, work was for the American market. Yeah. Probably 80% of the cars we built went to the States. So we were governed by the dollar to the pound because there were times when we actually had uh, less work and we had... Um, we we built the Morris Traveller mm-hmm. at Abingdon, um, the um, the van, but only for a certain period to tide us over because of the exchange rate between the dollar and things, and um, the American market had gone, you know, down, and so we were building um, these other cars. At the time, there was like British Leyland. It started off, say, BMC, then it went to, like, British Leyland and later on to something else. But between those, when it became British Leyland, of course, then it took in all parts of, you know, Cowley, Longbridge and um, all those other places and mainly Triumph. Mm. Now, Triumph was in competition because it was a sports car as well, in competition with the MG. Now, the MG was coming to uh, an end of its future, uh, you know, life. All the dies, the presses, they were all between one side of the MGB to the other. There's about a centimetre difference. And this is where the dies and the presses start getting over, you know, and um, but it was a hell of a production run, 20 plus years. Well, it, it was, and it was coming to the end of its life. Yeah. So at the time, the TR7 was coming out. They had everything ready, and we were phased out. Mm. Because, of course, the TR7 was supposed to be the MGB replacement, wasn't it? Well, yes, but we had our own. When the TR7... It went up to a place called Speak in Liverpool. When it actually shut, we knew, I think probably nine months before the actual date of shutting. But they kept that quiet because they had a contract for the amount of bees to be built to that end date. And if the workforce had found out mm-hmm. about the shutting of that, uh, you know, the factory, they probably wouldn't have built 
those last bees they had to build. So slowly then they phased in. We then had to go and tell, which was part of my job as a foreman, to tell all the people on, you know, that I looked after. Tremendously sad to look back at those final days. And so describe what the last days were like, you know, as the as the factory, the workers then knew the factories were sort of winding down. Must have been a really strange atmosphere. Well, it, it was a straight atmosphere, but actually people were, um, as it got nearer, um, you could leave on and get, like, the redundancy pay. Mm. So if they found a job they could go to, then they left, because slowly they was, you know, basically winding down. And um, so at the end, there wasn't the amount that finished there that were there, say, a year before. So it might have been 1,200 people all over the works. It might have finished with, you know, three, two, three hundred or whatever. At the time, it was a very bad time because it was 1980. And, um, of course... It was just when Maggie came in and there was, what, four million people out of work? Mm. And to get a job, and I think that was the biggest worry mm-hmm. of people, that uh, because locally, uh, most people, either the outlying areas or Aberdeen itself, that's where they all come from. Mm. Really heartbreaking to some people. Some people got a job straight away if they were lucky, mm-hmm. but... How about you? You walked out on the last day and thought, what do I do now? Um, not really. I, I can't really remember that, that much about it. Um, you know, I think that because I knew beforehand yeah. Yeah. it was being shut, that, you know, um, because I wasn't actually there the last couple of months because, again, I had the chance to um, take redundancy and I left as the place was being wound down and um, in a way I was lucky because I did find some work. Those people that were there at the end, they were chances of gaining things. <laughs> yes. <laughs> if you know my meaning. Indeed. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, it all depends where you worked, you know. You had you had your pyramid, mm-hmm. right? If you were on the shop floor, you had the chances of stuff around you on the shop floor. But as you went up towards the top of the pyramid, there was even, you know, engines, <laughs> even bodies, even bodies. Wow! And we'll say no more. We'll say no more on that. We we uh, wonder how many MG specialists started around that time from some of those parts well, procured it, from the shutting and, down line. Yeah, it, but the, the the thing is, it actually opened. There was a chap called Cliff Cliff Humphreys. The engine uh, yeah, development man. Yeah, he does man, the yeah. V8, um, you know. Yeah. Well, he started, after MG's closed, sure. he started his own, um, you know, re from, um, uh, you know, uh, an ordinary B to a V8. Yeah. 
Yeah, of I course. He was part of that other amazing team working here at Abingdon that were working not just on MGs, but the various other minis and triumphs that were in competition as part of the British yeah. Leyland Motorsport yeah. team that were yeah. based here, of course. Yeah, Those cars why. weren't necessarily well, built in their own factories, were they? Yeah, when the um, um, competition was sort of moved, a couple of them came back onto the shop floor as foremen. Right, okay. Yeah, so, um, you know, the the... the there is that. Amazing, though, that you look back on the real golden period, in a way, for MG, in the sense that you were there at the factory building what were their most iconic sports cars. Certainly one of the most popular and uh, best-selling sports cars the world has ever seen, the yeah. MGB. Yeah. The midget not far behind, of course. And, of course, it was an icon of the swinging 60s, the MGB. So working here in the factory during the day-to-day -day grind during the, the 60s years, did you ever have that sense that you were part of, you know, creating an icon? Well, I'll, I'll give you uh, an instance, right? My background is Sicilian because my parents were Sicilian, Right. And me and my daughter go to uh, Sicily nearly every year. And but one particular day, I was walking round by this little port, and um, we were crossing this bridge, and there was this Morgan, just sat there, you know, open top, the whatever. And so I said to my daughter, oh, "I just, I, I just want to have a look round it, you know." Okay. So anyway, we were looking round it. And a chap come out from this place, and I guess it was his, his Morgan, and he said, um, you like? <laughs> and I said, so I can speak the lingo. So I said to him, you know, yeah, yeah, no, I, they're, they're nice cars. He said, oh, okay, you know, but um, I said, well, I said, I, I used to work at uh, the MG factory. MG, UMG? And, I mean, you're in Sicily... And suddenly, there's a chap there that knows all about MGs. Yeah. Okay, he got a Morgan. But he, he probably had a, an up-to-date Morgan. Mm -hmm. Whereas the MG then, yeah. be a, you know. But he, he, and just that little thing puts in your mind that, you know, there was something here. It was the icon of the 60s. It was an icon of British manufacturing, of course, as well. And it all happened in this little town in Oxfordshire. Yeah. It's quite remarkable, isn't it? It is. It's very remarkable, yeah. And and there's another thing is that I um, got mates and we go out on a Tuesday on our bikes. We finish up at a pub and um, we have a couple of drinks and something to eat. But... Every week, it'd be a different pub, mm. right? There ain't one pub that I couldn't go in, and my mates didn't work here at the MG factory. There wasn't one pub I, that I went in that I didn't know somebody. Mm. And they'd say, what over You know, and, and they'd say, you don't know him. And I said, go and ask him. Yeah. And they'd say, you know, and it was like that. Yeah. Must feel you a great sense of pride now when you come to the MG Car Club a building and an organisation that stretches around the world thousands of people still deeply passionate about MG and you still see MGBs on the road 
most days actually you you'll come across one um you know does it feel fill you with pride that a they're still on the road and b people are so passionate still about them well i'll i'll, I'll give you another instance right because on a tuesday go to these pubs one day we were in this pub just round the corner here and these six blokes came in bomber jackets leather jackets with mgb club on the back so they went and sat down and da, 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 da. and i was sort of sat there i was intrigued i thought mgb club where are they from then mm. you know and what I was, so in the end i got up walked over and i said um i hope you don't mind but can i ask you where you all come from and they said, I think they said Alton or someplace in down in Hampshire. It's our MGB club. Right. I said, Yeah. I said, But what are you doing here? <laughs> and they said, Well, we've been up to the MG Car Club. And um, I said, Oh yeah. Well, what's happening then? And um, they said, Well, we've come up to sort out our fiftieth anniversary mm-hmm. MGB, like basically um, reunion do at Blenheim Palace so they said um, why Um, you know you ask it and I said well I used to work there did you (laughs) so and this is how this reunion now every year started us I then organized all the ex-workers to go to Blenheim Palace so that, and that, those fields, I don't know if you've ever been to a Blenheim Palace, those fields, before you come to the house, mm. were just filled up with MGBs mm. that had been come on that day to meet. And there was people from the Netherlands, you know, from France, from all over. And this is where you get that still now, you know, it, yeah. and it's still happening. It's a brilliant job that you've done organising this and bringing all these people back together must be a great joy for you to meet your mates. So I'll hold you back from them no longer. Okay. Uh, thank Vito, you. thanks for talking to us. Thank you. Well, a huge thanks to Vito Orlando there, not only for talking to us for the last 30 minutes here on the MG Car Club podcast and sharing his memories of working for MG at Abingdon, but also for organising that fantastic reunion that was held at Kimber House on the 7th of December 2022. And there are more stories to come over the coming weeks in more episodes here on the MG Car Club podcast. We'll be talking to a lady very soon that remembers working at MG during the Second World War. Incredible, plus more memories as well as we talk to more of the former factory workers at Abingdon here on the MG Car Club podcast. But that's it for this episode. We'll share more with you next time. Subscribe to receive new episodes of the MG Car Club podcast at mgpodcast.uk. Listener.